paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Are you ready? Are you rolling? Test, test, test. Get her alive. You are coming with me. I'm thrilled to be aboard the RoboCop documentary, RoboDoc. Your move, Creed. Man, we were making something. That is RoboCop. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Gary Smart, Eastwood Allen, and Christopher Griffiths, all about their documentary, RoboDoc, The Creation of RoboCop. It is a four-part documentary. Each episode lasts a little bit over an hour, being put out by Screenbox currently airing on their on-demand service. Plus, it'll be coming out on Blu-ray sometime in October. You'll hear more details about that as you listen to the interview. If you're a fan of the show and going all the way back to the beginning of the projection booth, I think it was episode 16, we did a pretty major episode on it. It was one of the first ones that really hit that sweet spot for me of trying to gather as many voices as we possibly could and putting together the best show about a particular film that we could. So if you haven't heard that RoboCop episode, I'm not sure if it holds up, but I'm pretty sure it does because we've got some great interviews on there. Nancy Allen was on there, Miguel Ferrer, Ed Newmeyer, Michael Miner, Ed Naha, Ronnie Cox, just a whole bunch of voices on there, all folks that had a hand in the creation of RoboCop. And we even have Monty Hellman on there, who was one of the second unit directors. Always great hearing more about RoboCop. I'm very glad that the guys are very open about the fundraiser that they did for the documentary and just that they've been a little incommunicado over the last few years. So you'll get to hear a little bit more about that in this interview, as well as the making of a four hour documentary about one single film. Who would be crazy enough to talk about a single movie for four hours, right? Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to know more of the history to this project. When did it start? When did you guys start talking about this? And how did it actually come to fruition? Because you guys have worked together in the past many times. Me and Chris and Nature were just over 10 years. We started a company 10 years ago called Court Screenings UK Limited. And our first project was Leviathan, the story of Power Rangers documentary. Then we did one after that called, you also called Bruce, the story of Fright Night. And that's when Eastwood came on board for that. And obviously he was our edge from that with Chris. And obviously he became kind of part of the fold then regards to Dead Mouse and Cool Screenings. It must have been before we were shooting, you also called Brewster. We probably were in the editing stages at Chris's. And I think we were talking then about what we our next project. And basically, we were in a process, obviously, of a meeting around Chris's regards and obviously the company and also our future projects. We talk about what comes next. Obviously, East was on board 
with your school Brewster. Eastwood's a massive Rebel Cup fan, I'm sure you probably know and he'll tell you in a bit. And obviously Chris was, and we're trying to think what's our next project going to be. We always had this kind of um, system where we do one, release it, and then as we release it, film another. And it was working quite well, really, in terms of uh, Leviathan and Brewster, because he was independent. We was very much independent. We had no real major pressures in terms of, obviously, the legalities of making these projects because he was very much under the radar. So it was quite a nice little routine we were having. So we thought, what comes next? Let's look at uh, Robocop. I remember Chris having a conversation with me around his about doing it, and then we reached out to a guy who had just done a book on Robocop. I won't mention his name, but he did coverage of, obviously, the films and the franchise, quite generic coverage, to be honest. And we thought, obviously, we reached out to him, basically say, you know, we've got this idea to do this project. What do you think? As a fellow kind of UK creative... He immediately responded to Chris and says, don't do it. And he's got, I can't remember really what it was. In the vague, there was no point in doing it. You're never going to get the people involved. You're not going to get, well, all this kind of stuff. And I think for about 10 seconds, we thought, let's not do it. And then I think because he said that, we said, fuck it, let's do it. And then that's how it started. And then Chris will tell you the story of when we went to the States and met Ed, how that kind of developed again and evolving. So we were filming the Brewster project what was that summer of 2015 and I had Ed Newmar on my Facebook and I'd seen that Ed Meyer had interacted with fans and I said to Gary oh, shall I message him too shy I don't want to message him and fair play as ever is the case numerous times Gary's done this he always pushes me he's like go on fucking do it do it okay I'll do it but I'm going in wide eyed like a fanboy but the message reads like to, hey Ed, we're in town shooting this film project on Friday night. It'd be great to hook up with you as if I'm a professional. And then I think it was a couple of days of nothing. I thought, oh, well, he doesn't want to speak to us. And then he obliged. He said, yeah, sure. Let's meet up. Let's go for a meal in Burbank. So went down, got myself. I think the only thing I could find down there was the soundtrack to get him to sign it. And I thought, well, at least we're doing that. And I think he, he thought we were approaching him because his partner at the time, 1985 was tom holland's the director of fright night's assistant so i think he was under the impression that we're coming along to ask him some questions which we never have to this day and just during the course of a meal we explained what we did and then we're fanboys and then he said oh you boys should do a documentary on robocop and i think he ruse the day he said that because i think within a heartbeat i was like making notes and oh what can we do and talking the whole flight back gary and i and then that's where I can probably safely move this conversation on to then. We were working with Eastwood, knowing we're fanboys of all things 80s. It was like, oh, guess who I met? for? We met, so for a meal, Ed Newmeyer. And then, of course, like he doesn't have to go searching IMDb or anything like that. And he is. And then, yeah, one thing led to another. I remember it was deep into post of Fright Night. And I think, Gary, I knew you guys had already met Ed Newmeyer and was well jealous because I came on board a bit after that to edit on Fright Night. And that's how me and Chris got talking about robocop and i knew chris was like in the top 0.1 percent of robocop fans and i feel like i'm up there too so it was like oh, i've met my person and then i remember gary saying something about oh, ed had seen the fright night trailer or something and i said oh if we whatever we do i'm involved i'd love to be involved in it and then we obviously did a kickstarter campaign i did the kickstarter video which was a load of fun and then yeah, just super excited. I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking, is this going to happen though? Because it's it is a bit of a sort of jump from Fright Night to Robocop. Because Robocop, everybody, everyone in the nan knows who Robocop is. 
even if you've not seen the film, there's another character. So yeah, I was just super excited. And then met up with the guys who were on a plane to to Burbank. Yeah, we did Burbank. We did Berkeley in uh, near San Francisco to meet Phil Tippett. Dallas, which was incredible, where obviously they shot Robocop. And then New York to pick up some more interviews. And we picked up interviews for the sequels as well. Quite a few in New York. You said you started the conversations in 2015. That's a little ways ago. So was that timeline from 2015 to now when we're talking today? And I know that's an unfair question. The original plan for our company was always to do one, release and film, release, film. That was the kind of plan, really. And I think the problem we had with Robocop was that when we filmed Robocop before Pennywise, it started evolving and getting bigger and bigger. And again, the lads will tell you about that, how it evolved. But it started getting massive. So we even had our pickup shoots. I think we had some crew doing stuff for us. So that we would have filmed in the summer, even like up until the, probably the May, June of the following year. We still have interviews done, people coming out of the woodwork. So we were like, shit, let's plan our next project. We planned Pennywise then. We'd met a guy called John Campo Piano and we started doing that. And I think what happens naturally with these things, if you lose that kind of like train, and get don't get off at the right station, you fucks you completely. And we did that. We took on two projects which were quite big. Obviously, Pennywise is nowhere near the size, ignore that dog, nowhere near the size of obviously Brewster or a Robodoc. But it shifted us a little bit. And I think we was always trying to get Weller as well. And it was always conversations. And it was always let's just wait a little bit while to get in. And I was negotiating with his people and I was getting people's contacted him in Germany when he was going to do a convention there. He did something in Sheffield. So it was always holding out really. And also for archive, I remember a very long process of the archive was for Eastwood with Paul Sam and people like that. And then there's other things happen. It got bigger and bigger. It started evolving. The project started changing shape, what it was going to be. I would, I would use excuse of day jobs, but it is a massive excuse because you know, it is day jobs. We all work full time. All of our lives started changing. Chris got married. Eastwood changed his job. And obviously then he moved into his house. And obviously then he had a kid. I changed my jobs, moved into a new house. And all these things do affect you in regards to what you can do. At the same time, we were doing other projects, which was stupid. But actually now, the fruition of that's coming now because we're releasing three new docs in one year we released. And then COVID hit. And COVID did kill, kill us for two years. It helped, I think, in some ways, you guys, to editing processes for some people because obviously many people spend more time on it we killed in terms of the business point of view because nobody was buying anything that the whole industry collapsed really in terms of some of the post houses and also the business side of it and then we got weller in 2021 after years and years of negotiations so i think there's a lot of criticism and a lot of when our hands up that particularly me as a producer start fucking up regards to like the process but I think that fuck-up has actually helped us because what we've got now is what the lads wanted. We were told there's no way you're going to get a four-hour documentary. We were told there's no way you're going to get a series. We were told there's no way you're going to get anyone even interested in it regarding regards to buying it off us and distributing it. That was all obviously because of waiting and streaming developing and thing people like Screenbox developing. That's helped us massively and they've been amazing for us, Screenbox have. In terms of the format we wanted to start moving forward in, the delays have been a nightmare and stressful. We can go into that later on. But that's kind of like the very long-winded, sorry, journey of how we've taken seven years, whatever it is, eight years, obviously, the first conversation we had. But I think it's I think it's paid off. I'm sure and the reviews we've been having and the feedback, it's definitely paid off. 
the stress. Eastwood was, you know, was didn't even have one single hair on his face when we first met him. He was so young. And now look at him. He's like a little old man. You can't see him. Going grey. He's gone grey. You know, he's, uh, let's not mention Chris. Chris has always been like that. <laughs> How did you manage to get Weller? I've done a podcast on RoboCop, and there were some people that were just like, no, don't want to talk about this. Other people would love to talk about it. Miguel Ferrer loves talking about or loved talking about RoboCop, but other people, no, I'm good for now. Basically, for the duration of the project, you say like this eight years, for more than 50% of that, it was much the same to us. You're not going to get Weller. We approached, we tried every avenue possible. And we, to be honest, naively thought, <laughs> i tell you what, if Nancy Allen or Ed Neumeyer or even Paul Verhoeven reach out to him, <laughs> he's going to come on board. No, <laughs> it was a simple answer. We, we accepted for a long time we weren't going to get Weller. And if anything, we were quite confident working with that Weller for all this time. He doesn't want to be involved. Fine, tell you what, we're going to go and get, and I think this is how the sequels kind of grew and grew. If we can't get Weller, let's get Robert Birkin. Let's get Richard Eden from the series. And maybe that'll entice him. We tried so many different ways of getting him. And I think from what I know and what Gary said to reiterate is that I don't think he was... The mindset was he just wasn't interested in talking about Robocop. I've been there. I've done that. Dr. Weller has very much got much broader horizons than just relishing in the past of Robocop with his doctorate and everything. But there just seemed to be this turning point where basically we encountered him. We were invited by a convention in the UK here called For the Love of Sci-Fi, where we know the guys, because we were told, guess who's coming along? It's Peter Weller. <laughs> and very graciously, they gave us the opportunity. They said, look, you guys know what you're on about. We know what you guys are doing. Do you want to showcase any of RoboDoc? And even more, do you want to actually interview Peter Weller on stage? And so we did. An interview is probably quite a strong term to use because I think it was like you ask a question and then about 30 minutes later, it's like, oh, he's, he's done talking <laughs> on to the next thing. But it was actually Eastwood afterwards was like, he didn't know who we were up to this point. East was like, I'm going to go and tell him who we are. And I think all of us like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that for God's sakes. And he did. And remember, it was almost like I could see it happening in slow motion, him <laughs> approaching him from behind. I'm like, oh, no, no. He did. He went and spoke to him. We all then toddled on behind, like, yeah, we were thinking this, like an army of penguins. And he said, we explained who we were. And the first thing I think he said was, you didn't record that, did you, for your documentary? And we're like, no, not at all. Quick, hide the cameras. And that's just basically kind of him on a face-to-face level. And speaking on Gary's behalf, as he's allowed me to, I know Gary was speaking to him one-on-one on email for some time as well. And Although he might showcase this one persona of, I'm not doing this, blah, 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 I'm done with it. He was very gracious to Gary. And it just, after that physical meeting in Manchester, that's where the wheels started turning and he started expressing interest. The deal moment where they're discussing and God knows what is completely out of my yard there. I haven't a clue how it works. I plead ignorance to all things admin, but that's basically where it happened. And I've got to say now, in retrospect, and especially watching it, and I'm going to let Eastwood take over here, but for my two cents, I feel like an idiot all those years thinking, we, we can get away with archive content. He doesn't need to be there. We can build him up as this mystery. And now watching it in its final form, I'm like, how the fuck did we think we were going to get away without having the lead guy? 
And I think hopefully I can segue that to like Eastwood in terms of how that, to be honest, evolved the project exponentially. I think when we think back to what we had in the documentary without Weller, we did have some like exclusive archive and we were comfortable going, oh, this will be never before seen or heard. So we were happy with it as like Robocop completists, Chris and I. I know Gary as well, we've mined all of everything that's out there that everybody's seen that all the Robocop fans throw our way still. It's, sorry, guys, we've already seen that. We, we we did our digging. We were the archaeologists on this project. So we found some archive. We were provided some archive. And we were like, yeah, this is going to be stuff it's in our doc that's exclusive, which fair enough, we can't get well there, but we've got some stuff in there. So it's not just repeating things that are on YouTube and whatnot. But what we were also thinking when we were thinking about that was, Weller does in his Robocop interviews, he can recite the exact same lines. He's very rehearsed. He's very articulate. But the answers are obviously not generic, but the answers are if you're a fan of Robocop, you know what's coming. You'll set up someone ask a question, you know what's coming. Chris and I, when we were preparing the interview, which we were shitting ourselves for because we're like, we know he's a character. This is one of our heroes. We want to get it right. We want to really get into some of the content that's never been talked about. We were prepping the interviews for everything that's going to be an exclusive in the doc. So yeah, we're going to cover the basics, the suit. We know he had a, a terrible time. It was tedious for him. He struggled with the heat. But let's ask him about the sound effect. Let's ask him about his voice. Let's ask him stuff that we've never heard him talk about before. And then we were also thinking, is he going to give us the same sort of stock answers? And then as soon as he found out Chris and I were, one, British, but then two, Chris was Welsh. As soon as he found out Chris was Welsh and Weller's got Welsh ancestry, he was all over us. The fact that we had like the documents of... The docs that he's in back in 1986 that we were provided by John Davison, I could literally give him notes from the notes he wrote in 1986 to prep him for the questions. He was like, wide-eyed, wow, this is some sort of interview that I wasn't expecting. I think we saw a lean-in, didn't we, Chris? And go, all right, it, literally, we've got outtakes, and you'll see it in the Blu-rays where well as literally, this is fun, as if to say, I've never had these sort of questions thrown our way kind of thing. So once we got that in the bag and Chris and I, interviewed well and came out the other end of it like literally high-fiving each other like calling each other up we called gary up we were all like giddy kid we were so happy we got him to handle the, a prop gun which was one of my guns that we got him to play with we got him to read the lines despite his management telling us he'd never read the lines he was just so relaxed and he gave the best interview ever and then once we got the footage and was like could you imagine this without this interview because i think some of the feedback we're getting now is weller is the shining light weller is the one that is basically carrying this dog and he is he really is everybody's fantastic in it but weller is you've obviously seen parts of it mike or all of it weller is literally on top form in the documentary which to us is amazing so we got a better interview than i think we anticipated and he's literally made it an 11 out of 10 and he was so kind to us on in the interview despite us shitting ourselves initially we spoke to him for four hours uh four and a half hours he gave us like an extra 35 minutes so he was amazing Took a little bit of warming up at the beginning. Chris and I were asking him questions, and it, and it, it was, and then it was only when Chris had mentioned that he had he was Welsh, and well, literally was like, "Wow, these guys know me." Kind of thing. It was it was unbelievable to see that we could literally see the gears change, couldn't we, Chris, when he said that? I think the embarrassing part is he probably knows more about Wales than I do, and I'm from there. <laughs> but I think actually, yeah, going on what Eastwood said, it was amazing. We had this a lot throughout the course of production, where some people come along wide-eyed, excited. The one thing I've got to say, watching this back, I can't believe the performances that everyone gives in this documentary, the energy, the animated nature of it. And things I really enjoyed was like some interviews didn't start like that, much like Weller's. And there's something just about that. When you interview someone and it feels a bit like standoffish, like a first date. 
and then you just something cracks. And I think there's very much the Welsh thing, as Eastwood said, but very much as well, just we came prepared. And Eastwood made a very smart move with that interview as well, because we were thinking he he could just fob us off in 30 minutes. So let's make this count. So rather than with all the other interviews, doing them all chronologically, the questions, these made the smart move to say, let's start with these ones that we know no one's going to know. And then, so if it's like shooting out a sequence, basically, get your sort of priorities. And I think my favorite sort of thing was once we knew we had them all <laughs> buttered up, we had like a reserve set of questions where we thought, ooh, <laughs> this could be a quite testy. Like about the fact that people have said he was quite difficult on set. And I think we just gave each other a look or maybe even like a WhatsApp on the side going, should we do it? Should we do it? And we did. And then even getting to the point of, I think I enjoyed, we did like, we laid it out like a quiz game for him that he had called his effects team to some of them anyway, what they considered derogatory names or all these nicknames. But we actually played that like, a quiz with him. So it's like, all right, Dr. Well, here we go. You came up with some names for your robo team. What were they? Who was Bart Mixon? And it was just, and you can just about see a slither of that in his interview. I think when he says, oh, what did I call the effects team? Put him on a quiz show. So it was monumental. And as you said, it's been a long time. But to get to that point, and even more so now that, thank fuck, it's out. (laughs) It's just evolved. Emotionally, this has taken its toll on everyone here and more no doubts but i feel like we're finally starting to see we are light at the end of the tunnel now yeah i thought for sure that verhoven would have been more of that energetic and just kind of wild man that he can be sometimes but yeah weller blew him out of the water mike he was a different type of intense velvet we interviewed verhoven at his house his and his wife's house in malibu Basically, we knocked on the door. Martine Verhoeven, who's the savior, she, we would, wouldn't have Robocop without Martine Verhoeven because she handed Paul uh, Verhoeven the script back after he threw it in the trash. She greeted us with some like lollipops or popsicles, I think you call them in the States. We were all like literally like kids walking in, and then Paul Verhoeven was looking in this beautiful house of like mansion. Where's Paul? And he was over by the piano reading his newspaper, and he literally looked up at the gang of us. There was like five of us all in our Robocop polo shirts, which Gary got made because he wanted to try and be formal and presentable. Um, he literally looked up at us, and we were waiting for him to say, hi, guys, or hello, give us a bit of a stare, and then carried on reading. <laughs> That's what it all kicked in, especially for Chris, because it was Chris's job to, to ask Paul the, the questions on the day. I think Chris's stomach dropped, and we were all like, shit, this is going to be hard work. But again, he warmed up to us. He warmed up to Chris as soon as he realized we knew our shit. It was amazing. It's great in a way that it goes from those peaks and valleys moments because th- there was never, Gary will attest to this, there was never any just like steady, it was never like complacent. None of the interviews were just like, okay, next one. It was all, there were so many like ups and downs and so many big characters and so many moments during the production that like it's made, it's imprinted a memory for us and it's added a bit to the mythos, if you like, of these characters that we knew were difficult, tricky, tyrannical. Yeah, it was amazing. And the fact that we got all that in the can and it's now out in the open is brilliant. I think it's testament as well to the editing Eastwood's done that. John Davison, the producer, he's a lovely bloke. And I tell you what, you watch all his interviews and he's got this very jolly, bubbly persona. Like, oh, yeah, it was all hellfire and brimstone. But he had, bless him, he had been on quite a long journey, I think, when he came to do his interview with us. And that was probably the one interview I was like, oh, I feel like I'm, do you know what I mean? 
I'm invading your personal space a bit here. So there was moments where I think, and I think being very professional, where if he didn't know an answer, he was very straight with going, next, don't know. And that might come across quite curt, but that's all being utilized and not out of context comments now. But those old moments where at the time you're thinking, oh, we've just lost that question has actually wound up in the documentary serving as these nice little segues for for topics. And again, and watching it back now, and certainly the correspondence we've had subsequent to the project and how supportive he's been with, yep, I've got some stuff in the archive. I'll dig it out for you. It just, again, shows. I think a lot of this project very much has been that, just watching these people blossom for us and going, <laughs> yeah, we are that lovely. Either that or just that persistent. Yeah, obviously, four and some hours for this project, the editing is crucial, and the use of those, what I'll call outtakes, wonderful. And I love how the characters almost seem to talk to each other through those. I think even we got one more as well is another favorite of mine is uh, Yost Vakan, when they're explaining about the gas station sequence where when they filmed the explosion and John Davison informs that, oh, well, I saw Paul and Yoss talking to each other. And again, he's just got these kind of like cutaways. Actually looks like the dialogue as well. Explain the conversation saying, yeah, Paul, that explosion didn't register on camera. And I wanted to kill him. And it cuts to Yoss going, oops. And in that particular moment, we filmed that interview. God, I think the year later in Munich, his apartment. But his phone went off during the interview. And it was just incredible. He just has the, he's very placid, Yoss. And he just has this kind of stoic expression. He just goes, oops. And <laughs> no so sorry just a simple oops and I, I thought it was hilarious watching that back as raw footage and then to see it made it in the final cut I was like yes so yeah this very joyous being able to utilize i think it shows that you can be creative with anything that comes your way within reason that's not putting things out of context you should never do that but just use what you've got and i think that's what i absolutely love about this project I always think when you start up and you've got a load of footage, in our case, we had 60 plus interviews. We had literally like 100 and odd, it was like 100 and a bit hours, I think. No, 77 hours of footage. I've got that written down, haven't I? You have to go through it. You have to literally, although now, seven years later, AI could probably do a lot of this. But when I, in 2016, you'd have to literally watch through it. And I know Gary's done it on previous projects. You transcribe it. We didn't transcribe it word for word. But what I'd done is make a document of all the comments. It's tedious. No one enjoys that side of it, but you need to get through that part to be able to do the fun stuff afterwards. So it to make that part fun, and I don't necessarily like editors listening to this, but I always think about this stuff when I'm doing it. Look out for those little comments, those little reactions. Even if it's somebody picking up a drink, just mark it. Just add a marker, just something that you can keep in your back pocket that you never know you might need. And we've got that sort of stuff. Even if it's a glance, there's moments in the documentary where we introduced the gang and I've got like Paul McCrane laughing and doing like a head turn i knew in the film because again like chris and i we've got these uh, photographic memories when it comes to like robocop that emil does a turn i was like pocket i'm going to use that side by side later on and the, the, when we show the gang they literally mimic each other things like that that, that makes a tedious process can help you along the way when you're doing it because yeah nobody enjoys the assembly stage the fun stuff after you've done the assembly and you know what you're working with that's when you can grind it down and make it into something enjoyable so i just yeah I, whenever i'm doing that i just go this is boring but let me just figure out what i can keep and what i can stick like i said in the back pocket to use later on there's load there's load more i could probably do like a two minute blooper of literally just people doing weird looks or like saying making weird noises or something but uh, yeah that stuff's really fun to put together i'm glad people have mentioned that as well because 
yeah, like Chris says, we're not trying not to do it out of context. We're trying not to make anyone look like an idiot because that's unfair. We wouldn't do that anyway because that it's not supposed to be a silly, jokey document documentary. There's humor in the film, obviously, so we want to play on that a little bit and lead into that. But yeah, I'm glad that people have recognized that sort of stuff. When was the decision made that it was going to be too big for a feature-length documentary and that you needed to break it into parts? It was always going to be big. Originally, it was going to be 90 minutes on the first film, and obviously then we were filming a big and we ended up interviewing people from number two, number three, and then obviously the TV series and whatnot. But then when we started deciding, obviously we were doing three parts. I think two parts originally we decided to do it. I think it was going to be Robocop and then Robocop 2 and 3 and Legacy, I think it was going to be. The screen box wanted it in three parts once obviously we got involved with them. And then obviously then the lads, obviously, again, they'll tell you in a second about obviously their idea to do a scene-by-scene dissection. We had many debates, many rows actually about the length of the doc because our previous doc, Leviathan, was seven hours. And I about seven hours, five hours was just boring bullshit. And we learned from that, even though people loved Leviathan, we were really embarrassed by it in the end. And actually when we had the opportunity to re-edit it, even this was like years ago, we re-edited it obviously for... Arrow, an Arrow release, which was producer's cut, we called it. And it was, I think it was two hours, an hour and a half. We'd like to go back on it again, Leviathan, I think for the 40th anniversary of the first film. I think we've got, I think everybody's skills have developed now where we could do something really nice with that. But again, we'll discuss that later, lads. But in terms of obviously, you know, the length, I think we said about four hours. Issa was adamant on four hours because of the structure change of the dock. But we then started battling with our sales agent producers because they were, it was really weird because like about two years ago, everything had to be 100 minutes. Everything had to be. And it was like this new kind of documentaries can't be any more than 100 minutes. And if you do 100 minutes, you lose the audience. And I think particularly before streaming was getting big, people were trying to put docs on channels like HBM Max or things like that or Channel 4 over here. And we always thought these are docs wouldn't work on a format like that. It's not a TV particular format so we were arguing all the time going you know with, with our salespeople and our producers going this is not we're not that 100 minute format and we caved in on pennywise and that was some of the criticisms we had on pennywise and i think it's perfect length pennywise is because it's the nature of the dock itself we had a lot of criticism from people going it should have been longer it should have been three hours it should have been four hours we could have done it four hours but it would have been boring this is different obviously because it's a completely different kind of like format and then when we did the Hollywood Dreams Nightmares, we went over 100 minutes. There was a big debate about that. But that was because we had to. We were covering somebody's career with lots of films. And also, the Nightmare on Elm Street was, in, that was 45 minutes on Nightmare on Elm Street, and then another 20 minutes on New Nightmare, 15 minutes on Freddy vs. Jason. Rewind to this. I always remember the conversation with, with Eastwood. I remember where I was as well when the conversation happened on the phone. And I'd been told by our sales agent or sales producer, it's got to be 100 minutes and you need to go and tell Eastwood. It can't be any more than that. It has to be this. And I remember phoning him and we had a, we had, say we had words, we had a debate. Because obviously I'm stuck in the middle sometimes with obviously our salespeople who are going to sell the project for us and also then the creative team who obviously they're putting their blood, sweat and tears into it. And I'm trying to balance that and try and be the good guy at the same time trying to be everybody's friend really. And it has to be. And memories with there's no way there's no way we can do four hours it and not 100 minutes it has to be this because we're doing dissection of a fucking film and you, you can't do a dissection of a 90 minute film in 100 minutes it just wouldn't work 
And yeah, and also the, we'd waste a lot of stuff, Ben. And I was back and forth. And, and I know Isha may not, I'm sure he doesn't remember saying this to me, but it's not, he was never said in a derogatory way to me, this wasn't, but he did, he said something to me in the lines of, it's your company, you make the decision. You've got to stand up, you know, what's right. And if you feel it's right, say it's going to be over for 100 minutes. And because he said that, I just went back to him and said, it's going to be, it's going to be four hours. That's it. There's no question about it. He got four and a half hours, nearly five hours in the end he did. But again, we were lucky with Screenbox on that. They've never restricted us. The contract said an hour episode. I think they actually were quite happy. It was longer than an hour. But again, I had to tell you what, I mean, I've already touched upon it, but why it went from a traditional dot to this, it couldn't be any less than that. Yeah. I'll let Chris talk about the interview side of it because in our questioning, and Chris was the ones asking the questions to most of the interviewees, Chris has obviously gone into detail and covered every scene anyway. So when I came back with all the footage, I've looked at everything, I've gone, Jesus Christ, <laughs> we've literally covered every single scene. And it's not, I've said this before again, but like, what, it was never me saying I want it to be long for the sake of it being long to be like, oh, this record length, it's more. What can we get in there? Because if we don't have it in there, there's nobody that, no other company that's going to go out and produce a Robocop documentary and get 65 interviewees and get the wealth of stuff that we've got. So if it's left on the cutting room floor, there's no one's going to see that. It'll just be me and Chris watching it when we go around to each other's house. So that was my thinking was like, this is gold. And everybody was on fire. Every interview was, on, was absolutely on fire. The scene by scene thing came naturally from our questioning. We got that many people come out of the woodwork. Initially, we only had 16 people booked that Gary and Mikey, our other producer, booked for us in the States. We ended up coming back with 65 Oh, it was 60, and then we ended up getting a few more. On the way back, some of the people we've outsourced to, so we ended up getting uh, extras, Kurt Smith, things like that, were outsourced. So do we want to leave those people out? Do we want to cut it down? Like I said, where's that footage going to go? It's not in there for, for the sake of it, and hopefully, and I know some of the feedback we've had early on has been like, oh, it could be longer, or we, we, we've left, it's finished, and we want more, and it's good, that's what we want it. We want to do. We want to have that balance of... There's a ton in there, and, and some people, like, no doubt, are going to go, it's too long, it's four hours. We're not fussed about those people. We want the people that are going to go, bloody love that film, and that's made me want to go and watch Robocop with a new understanding, and we've had a lot of that. So over to Chris, but that's sort of my two cents on the whole four-hour episodic. Yeah, like he used to say, I think that's part of the whole like evolution. We naturally just grew into a beast. The idea of what we do with Dead Mouse Productions and everything like that is it's... Some films have already had documentaries. Hellraiser certainly had quite old school ones now, like early 2000s at the dawn of DVD. Friday Night's only ever had EPKs. Pennywise, we look for almost like gaps in the market and something like Robocop, which has had its fair share of 10th, 15th, 20th anniversary editions with maybe the odd new interview. This was a bit more of a challenge. How could we make it bigger? So that was a starting point. The questions themselves, the thing for me going on to the film Robocop is really, I'm biased because it's my number one film. It almost did to me zero fat on that film. Every single scene slays in different ways. Effects heavy, the action, the drama, the, even the dialogue, the boardroom scenes, everything's got something to it. So by the time you're like, oh, we'll get that person, you just have to look at that's virtually every scene. We got Small, smaller parts like Donna Keegan, who's ja who was or still is Jamie Lee Curtis's stunt double, certainly from the H2O days, as the rape victim. Okay, cool. We've got her. We were unfortunate. We didn't get the hophead, obviously, from the uh, the supermarkets at the mom and pop store sequence. 
But in terms of some like funny situations we had, whilst we were filming Pennywise, the story of it, and we were in Vancouver, we got kids. So it was Eddie Spaghetti. And it's Adam Frazel, the actor. And I remember, I think we're going into it, I was like, he was in RoboCop 2, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, Sonic, we've got RoboCop 2. What the hell? Mr. Shit, he's fucked up. Let's get him. Let's just do a little piece on two. And it was in that interview that he was like, oh, here's a little known story. I was actually supposed to be in one. And it's in the mom and pop store scene. Bam, there's another scene filled. Gary's at the moment producing out a ginormous Police Academy franchise documentary. Scott Thompson. And it was only from watching, I think it was actually one of the clips from our documentary at the time of Robodoc. I looked at the... I was what maybe I was the film, but it was the rape sequence, basically, or would be rape sequence. And I looked closely, and all these years, knowing Police Academy and knowing Robocop well, it was the first time it ever dawned on me. I was like, is that Scott Thompson as in Mr. Blue Oyster Bar from Police Academy? And Robo I never realized I never put two and two together. And so it was ironically, when we were filming Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, they had a green screen in the studio we used. And so it was like, Gary. Can you message Scott to come in? So he came in to do that. Eastwood then subsequently had found Sage Parker, Tyler, from the birthing sequence, if you want to call it, from Robocop. So we got her in. And that's what it is. It's just this, oh, we found this person. Oh, we found that one. And then that, in turn, makes us go, well, fucking let's just get more of them. Do you know what I mean? If we, And try and let's figure out what we've got and then place it all down. And I think one of the greatest things that could have possibly happened in retrospect now, fortuitously, was getting Weller last. And Eastwood had the full edit already cut together. So to be able to almost go, what are we missing here and here? And even at times, we didn't probably even prompt him. He, I'm amazed to hear him talk about the stuff that doesn't involve him, how much he loves the Ed 209 boardroom sequence and everything. Being able to do that, and again, with the questions that were laid out in the correct order, we were able to go, oh, let's talk about this. It was a giant wave we were given to ride, which at times was treacherous, but at the same time, we were like, okay, sod it. Let's <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound. So it, it really did evolve. And I think for everyone involved in this project in a very modest sense, I think we've really batted out of the park. But believe you me, for a long time, many points, I've just thought, fuck, I, I wish <laughs> we hadn't started this now because you just tried to wrangle it. There's been a nightmare for everyone gary with the producing side eastwood with the editing side and me with my ego of being the number one robocop fan <laughs> you guys have mentioned several times robocop 2 is there another documentary in the works now yes there is again the original intention if you go back to that initial kickstarter video we did yeah i can remember the line it might be eastwood or it could be me says we would also like to look a little bit at two and three and again circumstance okay you've got your continuing characters or actors throughout the franchise there's not a great deal of them i think during that process of we can't get peter weller let's get at least one robocop oh look we got robert burke oh look we got richard eden and so that kind of grew and oh sorry let's get hob let's get tom noonan let's get galing george even dr fax melinda bauer from two so yes there is a two and three <laughs> series and even the comic books, actually, which were only lightly touched upon in the first documentary, and got like an assembly edit of two. And uh, much like Eastwood enjoyed dealing with one, bit of a difference 
story in this respect, given the reputation for the sequels. But being able to actually put Weller in there is insane. I'll say now, I'm happy to say on the record, there's not as much detail in terms of Weller's side of things because it seems people see, have selective memories when it comes to the making of two. But we've actually got a full-fledged at least two hours on Robocop 2, and we were gifted by Paul Sam, who gave us a lot of stuff already, somewhere in the region of about four hours of behind-the-scenes footage, which I know appeared in the end on Screen Factory, but we've got the raw content. We've got good few tidbits that have never been seen before. So it's going to be different. It's not scene by scene in as much as I hold them dear to my heart because they were the films watching growing up. We don't go as far in detail. And I don't think they're the kind of films that warrant a, oh, every single scene we all remember. But we've got a lot. And we've got Fred Decker for three. So they are on the horizon. <laughs> Just, yeah, hopefully be out in the ne- very near future. You guys could probably do at least half an hour just on RoboCop ripoffs or the weird Japanese tie-ins, like the fried chicken that he was selling. I remember when that came out, the did the KFC advert. I think it might be the mistake. She did the KFC ad, didn't need the voice for it, I think. And I remember us being really pissed off because we were trying to get him. And then suddenly Weller started reappearing, doing cons, and he was doing stuff like that. And we were like, why would he do this now? We understood why he wouldn't do it originally, but he's like, hang on a minute. He's doing conventions. He's doing voiceovers. He, he's actually talking Robocop again. So that's when I think again, rewinding a little bit when we realized that we could get him, hopefully. But I think a very clear now, no more interviews for Robocop and unless someone that we desperately need for number two or three. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, thank me that. I reached out the other day. I reached out because after our last interview, no response, but I reached out and I will try. Yeah. Again, I think actually, we, I think we've, I think at the time he wasn't, I'm sure we've had that a few times with people and it's been really, people will criticize why we haven't got people. And it's been genuine reasons. Miguel Ferrer was actually really ill, obviously, when we, when he said yes to us. And I think we were told we had booked him in the studio and we were told he was obviously that day he was very sick. Then they promised reschedule. Obviously, we were only there for limited time, and we wasn't that long, I don't think, were we, when he passed away? So, again, he wasn't... He came with Sid Haig. We had, you had two, three days of Sid Haig for Hollywood Dreams where he was supposed to turn up at the studio. And their papers people wanted to do. I know Miguel wanted to do it, and then obviously, circumstance obviously didn't allow him to. But it's another example. We do try, and I did see it the other day. Someone messaged him, it's... This is documentary seven years, and why didn't we get him? We tried, but unless somebody is very important, when the editing process starts again, or you know, he already is in place for this. That if somebody's name pops up again, we can get. I was saying to the lads, if it happened, there's other projects we'd like to work on, which we've always kind of that burner because approaching people because we want to build obviously a rapport, credibility already in our projects. I think the last year or two years working with Screenbox has massively helped our credibility but also this has and I think when you show somebody an episode of this a manager or an agent and they can see what the quality of work goes into a project we what Dead Mouse do and court screenings I think that will entice people more now than maybe we've done two years ago when we were known for not releasing things and pissing people off so I'm hoping now people go oh this is good. This is something really special. It's like we stand a talking head documentary with super fans talking about a film they love and not the actual people who are involved in it. 
So I'm hoping that will help us. So if you're listening, Arnie. You mentioned a Blu-ray release. Is there a date for that to come out? It's October 18th for the US copy. And there's also a Walmart exclusive on the same day, which has got a really nice steelbook cover. The Blu-ray has 60 minutes of bonus features. So there's nine special features on there. We've got a Rob Bottin tribute. We've got several pieces on the weapons and goes into details about the weapons. And then some of covers also some of Paul Verhoeven's set tantrums, if you like. We've got a piece that Chris and I did about the history of the dock and how Robodoc came to be, which I think will be enlightening for people because they can actually see some of the stills and some of the behind the scenes of how we actually made the documentary. What else have we got on there? Oh, yeah, a lovely video game piece that Chris cut together about the Oceans game or Ocean Software game that came out for the arcades in the early 90s, was it? Uh, yeah, there's a few of the surprises in there. But yeah, again, it's 25 minutes shy of six hours of RoboCop 1 content on that Blu-ray. So initially, again, we set out to do a 100-minute documentary and grab what we could, and the, the Kickstarter backers signed up for that. We're giving them four or five times the amount of stuff. So I appreciate it's been a long way and we've not been the best with communicating and things change and things that we promised back in the day change just naturally it's a team of five six people doing all all of this we started out as fans so i appreciate everybody's patience i think it'll be worth the wait when they finally got it and then they can stop giving gary a load of hassle (laughs) fingers crossed (laughs) are you the flack person gary you get all the crap i won't stop (laughs) Yeah, I just blame these two, but yeah, I'm the one. I've had death threats on our project, which has been interesting. Watson would kill you over a Blu-ray. I have no idea. I'm bigger cunt than that to kill me for other reasons, to be honest, or on the Blu-ray, but you know, you get and I understand it. We, it's really hard, and, and it's, it's probably important to address because Ace just brought it up. We've all set out to do, with best intentions to do the best project possible. We're all fans. And again, back in the day when we were releasing Leviathan and Brewster, we had full creative control of these projects. But what it meant was the projects were tainted in the sense that they weren't professional. They, we always did a professional job. We always put everything into it. People never couldn't really find our projects because they were limited to a thousand copies. And they would disappear. We'd be lucky, actually, with Brewster. Yeah, it was. You had boxes piled up at home and was going through that. <laughs> yeah. They were shipping out of your bathroom as well. <laughs> It was impossible to take a piss in that toilet. Oh, no, I just got over that limited edition of your so cool Brewster. <laughs> in terms of, obviously, you know, we've been lucky over the years. It, it's found a home, obviously, on bonus features. Sony picked up Brewster, which we was amazed. We had the email. I thought we were going to be sued. So it, it's evolved, and obviously now it's on Screenbox. When we've obviously had to engage now with people like Screenbox, it's because... When you think about Robodoc, I can't remember exactly big we raised. I think it was 36 or 33 grand we raised. I think it was on the Kickstarter, which back then was more than enough to get the production done. Even though we were shooting, obviously, over three different countries or three states, whatever. But then it's actually cost us, I think we tallied it the other day, about 250 It's cost us now. And when people criticise us because they put the 35 quid in which is brilliant and we really appreciate it because we couldn't have done the doc we couldn't have filmed it without that out of that 250 grand english dot pound we obviously said that's probably about what nearly 300 probably thousand dollars 33 of that came from kickstart the rest has come out of our pocket 
We don't take salaries on these projects. We've always put the money back in. So Brewster was Leviathan put back into Brewster, Brewster put back into Pennywise. So we understand the frustration. We understand it. And I'd be pissed off. We're really hoping now when people see it, they understand why it's taking so long. The dedicated going to it, which no one else wanted to do, no one else was willing to do it. And as Eastwood said, I think we've given people a lot more than they, they originally intended. And also the fact that if you're a Kickstarter pledgey, you're not just getting number one, you're getting number two and three as well. When they're released as well, hopefully by Screenbox. So you're getting three releases, really, as opposed to just the one. And actually, I think today, in terms of you put a tenner, 10 quid down to have your name on the credits, which a lot of people do on Kickstarters, but you're on four credits for Robocop 1 alone. It's not just one credit reel, it's four and that sounds really silly of me saying that, but actually your name's on there weekly and it's been seen by a lot more people would have saw Brewster and Leviathan. So we could have a whole podcast just on the Kickstarter kind of wars and whatnot. I'd never do it again. As much as it, it started us and it's been brilliant for us and it was a breeze really on Brewster and Leviathan, I think the stress it gives everybody, and I think sometimes the abuse it gives people, when these guys are working their asses off and trying to say to people, don't call these people scam artists. I think my favourite one is con, con artists. That's the, it's hard to not laugh at that, and in particular with Robodoc, because we were a bit wide-eyed. And we offered our previews. We showed the behind the scenes. We were wide-eyed showing all these photos and videos and God knows what, all this stuff. You're a artist. You just run off with our money, and you just want to... Sorry, I'm going to have to gesture it, but... Wave your hands like that. I don't know if it's a picture of Jim Carrey with his arms wide open like that. What is this? What is this? Said you wouldn't talk about that, Gary. I slapped Gary's ass in the middle of the night. I remember. I think my wife. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what did I do? <laughs> you could that'd put us up to a two star hotel. We shared a bed, me and Chris did, in the States <laughs> to save money on our hotel rooms. He sort of shared a room with Adam. You know, we had to, that's the level we go to. We restrict ourselves to a budget for the meal per day. So you're not allowed to eat. We do that because the money is for the project. If I put Kickstarter right now and raise 250 grand for a project, you know, how much that's going to the project? When you raise three grand on cool screening, every penny's going in and more. So lots of regrets. Hands up. It's all these guys' fault, but it's worth it. I genuinely think it's worth it. I think. And there's probably a few people who have died since they contributed to our projects. Listen, if I was on the other side of this as a massive Robocop fan, I would be going, where the fuck is this documentary that you all promised us? But from our point of view, the guys that we're in it, we're in that bubble, it would be the worst scam of all time. It's more effort for us to do a four-hour documentary, to bring financiers on, to spend more money out of our own pocket. But all we want is the best end result. I want In 10 years' time, people are going to forget that it took us seven years to make it. They're going to just watch the thing. That's awesome. That's the definitive Robocop documentary. So I said to Gary, wait till it's out. You're going to get a load of shit and apologies because you are the brunt of this. You are the face of the company and the face of this project. But I think once it's out, once all four episodes are dropped, and once people have got the Blu-rays, fingers crossed, we're not scamming anybody. There's been none of that. They're getting a better end result. And that's all we wanted. That's all Chris and I wanted when we set out. was like, we want to make the definitive. We want to make the best. We want to leave no stone unturned. But yeah, it's taken us longer. The team's not got any bigger. We've been doing it. The stakes have got higher. We've had more people. We've had pressures in terms of time frames. There's been five or six of us doing it all. So, again, we're not taking. We never made any salary off this. All that stuff aside, we were doing it out of pure passion. 
But it's been frustrating from our side of things to just see some certain members, Gary, just getting a load of shit. But again, if I was on that side, I don't blame the people doing it. I just wish that they'd think we're putting this together because we want the best product. That's all we want. And I'm not talking about product to sell. I'm talking about we never get went into this to make money. I'm talking about product to add to the legacy for people to watch in 5, 10, 15 years' time to go, that's cool. That's all we wanted. So of these guys, I think I was the one that was just like, just wait and see. Don't forget about it. Just wait and see. But obviously, it's these guys' company. So it's a lot easier for me to say that. To give Brandon Hills the credit he deserves from Screenbox, when we met him and he came on board, and Lawrence Gornell and then the Hank Stars, we know there's always arguments with producers that come on board and we always row with them. But everybody had the best intentions to get this out and I've been getting Screenbox involved. And even though we had a bidding war on some other projects, they've got a lot to, to be thankful. Why? Because Unleash, obviously, the creativity from Eastwood and Chris and not shackle them down within a 100-minute project to go, yeah, do it. And I've been, you know, they've never come back with anything, have they, in terms of we want to cut this, this is wrong. And I know, I know people will work with other streamers who get lists, you know, and if they're independent people, they get lists of what can they, what you need to remove this, this needs to be added. We want this. We've never had that from them. I think ultimately there's parallels, especially watching Robodoc now. I'm watching that and I like I empathize with that. I think you really can draw parallels. Long arduous project. Okay, we didn't have the heat because we're in the UK, although it was hot over in the arguments, friction, tension, fun moments, you know, action, drama, comedy. And then and yeah, if you've got Screenbox and Orion Pictures. Orion, why it's so revered for its time is because of what their output was and how they were like, as Michael might have put it, a producer-driven company that let these films fly. Limited budgets, but I'm very much on that sort of borderline independent side. But actually, that's what it feels a bit like has happened again. We've got a distributor who's actually gone, no, you do the way you fit. We'll do like that and let it fly. I'm genuinely thinking there's going to have to be a robo doc doc i think which is about the making of the documentary we're all prepared there to do our interviews on that give it a couple of years i'm not trying to be silly or stupid or anything i'm just genuinely curious as far as rob botin what is he up to these days because i know i belong to a group on facebook of trying to find rob botin it feels like he fell off the face of the earth we're a bit very much the underlying statement is we tried we knew anyway, as ardent fans of Robocop, The Thing, Inner Space, and all his works, The Howling, I think it's well known in the fan circles that, oh, Robo Team just stopped. He went into real estate and everything like that. When his final credits are Fight Club and some strange credit, I think, on like Game of Thrones, even, he has become a bit of like, almost like a Howard Hughes, like the mystery man. And we had a few instances where, again, trying to take that same approach we did with Weller of someone's going to know him. Someone's still in contact with him. And I know there was definitely the one instance where I'll let Eastwood say the other one, but the first one I remember vividly was Ed Newmeyer showed us a photo on his phone of, he was like, oh, I've got a photo of Rob here. Actually, he was at my barbecue the other week. And it's someone wearing a balaclava on their head with a pair of glasses on top that looks like this UK comedy show called a phone jacker. It could have been anyone under that thing, but that was that is the latest photo I've ever seen of, of Rob Bottin. And I think Eastwood's got another one as well in regards to a call. 
it was funny though because it just added against the mystique of the whole thing. Like I said, there were just there was no like complacency with this whole project. There's always ups and downs. There's always like these character moments. And yeah, Ed Newmind came into our production office in Burbank where we were shooting with the green screen and showed us a picture. And I don't know if it was the second time he came back, but we were asking again about Rob Bottin and why he's so elusive. And Ed, Ed Newmind is obviously a friend of Rob's. And he got out his phone and was like, "I'll call him." And he was like, "Rob Bottin." And Chris and I, <laughs> Gary was there, Mike, or Adam was over there. I, in my head. I was hanging over and we were all holding our breaths. And he got up Mr. Botine or Rob Botine, called it and had it on voice and speaker. Somebody answered. I'm sure there were like breaths. So it was definitely someone on the other end. It didn't say, this might just be me. Like this might just be, I've just exaggerated it now after all these years, but this definitely happened. No one said anything. I think Ed said something like Rob and then he hung up and it was just that Ed's Rob's friend. He was at a barbecue. He's got his name and his phone and he just hung up and it is just he, he just not ran away from the industry but it was just there was something with the documentary that took him out of context he wasn't happy with it and he was i'm done with this we hope that he sees it again i think he's covered in the doc in depth you can see from you if you listen to the robo team you listen to peter weller just how well thought of he was and is john davison everybody talks about him and just such high regard we've got a tribute on the blu-ray we would love a pint with him we'd love to just have a chat with him and, and just say thank you for in our tribute we've got a little line at the end which is from us saying just thank you for your contribution to cinema because his work and the fact that he started at what 17 or something but just his work and dedication and that suit there's no no better suit in cinema than that suit what are you working on now? Are you three working on a, another project together or are you working independently now? We'd obviously, Corpse Screenings had a backlog. So we had obviously Pennywise to get out, then RoboDoc, Hollywood Dreams Nightmares, then RoboDoc. So that we've been working our ass off the last two years, trying to get those three projects completed. We have two other projects which are obviously films. One obviously is Police Academy Doc, which He's covering the, the seven films and, and sure he sort of come on board with that for some motion graphics for us. And I, I know he very much helped regards to Hollow Dreams going over the edits for us as well, giving some pointers on it as a producer. And the same will be obviously with Police Academy. The next, we do want to do something next. We kind of talked about it the other day on the podcast. I think we'd like to work together again, hopefully. I think after it's been a very tough process, but again, I think. The next time we do it, we'll be working for a streamer as opposed to independently. So there'll be a lot more structure for us. People might be paid, which would be nice up front or obviously for work they're doing. We wanted, there's a couple of franchises. Eastwood, which the viewers can't see, is wearing a t-shirt at the moment with a film we want to cover. We were in a better position than we were two years ago to approach certain people for it. And I think we pitched that project in a right way in terms of there's a massive cult fan base for it. People love that film. Yeah, we know the studio fucked it up. We know it was critically panned. However, it's become a cult film and people love it. That's something the angle we go for on it. And I think we can find the right people. Obviously, there's one particular actor who's key to it. But that's, I think, we've got ideas, obviously, for a series as well about, obviously, about actors and whatnot. I think we, we all said we'd get Robocop out of the way in terms of release. Then get back together maybe before Christmas and have a conversation, I think, before Christmas and go, what do we want to do? And start looking at, with potentially someone like Screenbox, moving from January onwards, back, maybe shooting in the summer next year, but building it up. But I think that's probably my plan. I'm sure Chris will do what he's told. And obviously, he's will be on board, and obviously Adam and Mikey as well. That's our core group of people, really. We're not stopping. And I think this is obviously 
Rodoc has helped us, I think, in terms of putting us on another level regards to the company as well. I think we've had some bad reputation because of obviously silly things out of our control. But the last three releases have been very successful. Obviously, Pennywise won the Fangoria Best Documentary Award this year. We're hoping that Hollywood Dreams is nominated and I hope to God that we get something, got to get some awards and recognition for Robodoc. Yeah, if we don't, there's some serious problems, really. And I'll just blame Eastwood. Just for you, Mike, as well, I'll just say the T-shirt I'm wearing is Last Action Hero. So a film that, again, was we love this film. If it would have come out 10, 10 or 15 years after, what was it, 93, it would have been a success, I think. Just the fact that it came up with Jurassic Park. So there's, yeah, there's that angle too. The fact that Schwarzenegger very rarely talks about it. I think he was caught once at like a convention dress like Jack Slater. We know that he's a bit embarrassed by the figures that it did at the box office, but we'd love to dig into the production of that because that was one of the best made movies of the 90s when you look at it. Like it was so slick and ahead of its time and meta and the cameos that they've got in, the soundtrack's incredible. The direction, the action direction's amazing. The little kid in there is fantastic. We played Danny Manigat. So there's so many, there's so many aspects. I'm just giving you some context, Mike, just so people are like, what t-shirts he's wearing? But <laughs> that's pretty much cut that up how you want. But yeah, we bloody love that film. From my end, I'm doing something like Mass Action Hero, Last Action Hero, was I think we found like going through each project, it's quite nice to shift gears a bit, change up the style. So there's, I can't see it being a four hour scene by scene dissection, he says now. But I think it's interesting to kind of talk about, for me, it's like films that never either have got a cult status. I know there was that Island of Dr. Moreau, Lost Souls documentary, kind of different scenario, but again, a kind of a somewhat compromised production. I think it's got to have a, a kind of a good storied hook to it. And I think very much so with a character like Schwarzenegger, someone who's always about being first place, goals, victories. It's amazing that my perception from the very get-go watching it the first time, and even my old man, who's an absolute cinema snob, is like, no, Last Action Hero is a great film. And it was only getting older and understanding things more that in retrospect, like, oh, I didn't realize it was actually an absolute failure and how much that kind of impacted him. I'm not going to say his career, to be honest, because he's always he had Planet Hollywood going for him at the time. But I think it's, it'll be interesting to delve into something where it's not just so much about making of it it's about let's try and figure out why this happened or at least give it its kudos and i think we've hopefully done that with robocop i think i've certainly gauged the responses i've seen so far it's like shit really is a good film and that's what we're here to do we're here to spread the word of all these films we love and justify and unpack why they're so good so hopefully i don't have to be embarrassed saying to someone oh yeah my favorite film's robocop and I think Last Action Hero is definitely in my top five Schwarzeneggers. I think I think it's an unfairly looked upon film, certainly for its time. But there's a lot to counter the arguments to that, basically. Give it its time in the spotlight. Going a little bit back what I was going to say before about the backlash we get. My mindset's this. If we don't do it, no one's going to do it. Bear with us. <laughs> we're going to give you what you, we're going to be the final word on these things. You just have to accept that we're just not doing it in the easiest of circumstances. Certainly now with families and daily jobs that don't seem to be getting any quieter these days. But you know, I'm just glad when they're all out. And as Gary said, not doing a Kickstarter again. <laughs>
as someone who gave to the Kickstarter for the Robocop statue, I know what it means to wait for Robocop. So hopefully one of these days. <laughs> it seems to be, and I know the game, the Rogue City has just been announced. It's delayed. So there's a pattern emerging here. Things don't happen overnight when it comes to Robocop. Oh, and of course, Robocop Returns, which God knows where that's at the moment, to be honest now. Maybe they should look to us to see that through. I was so glad that you guys didn't cover the remake that much. So thank you. That's pleasing, Paul. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. And this is the thing. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Mike. So we've had fans and we've seen comments where people are like, oh, but they don't care about the Prime Directive series or they don't care about the games that come after. Basically, we want we wanted to bottle this up. It's the Orion years. It's basically... 1980s to what is it 95 96 with Orion and obviously Robocop 3 and the and some of the comics and, and games that come after that if we start doing the, the remakes which again not got much respect for the remake anyway but it will just date the dock because there'll be another remake that we never covered and in five years time so we'll go oh, they didn't cover that so that's why we've done it we've bottled up it's the Orion years to so see it as the Orion years so when people are like why have you not covered that thing it's like there's your reason right there five of us making this stuff if you get us another 25 people we'll cover the entire robocop franchise we'll do every single frank miller comic robocop versus terminator comics all the re all the remakes and series that you want but we had to put a cap on it somewhere i struggle to be honest with the remake i'm biased i fell as i actually fell asleep i was excited i was in new york when had those like giant cinema marquees up and just to see robocop up there looking a little bit more like a Nolan Batman. It's Robocop in big lights. And then I finally went to the cinema, and I, I shit you not, I, f- I fell asleep halfway through it. And I don't think I had any reason to be tired that day. And don't want to trash on it too much, to be honest. I think it was not an easy thing to do. It was not done right. Hats off to him for at least trying. But I just genuinely can't. I just don't associate the remake with the original. And I think in a good way... The image, the pop culture image of Robocop, unfortunately, unlike Pennywise, where now quite often there's, if not an sort of an even balance between the newer version of Pennywise and the older one, Robocop just never seems to be that, oh, yeah, you know, the, the modern Jose Padilla one is Robocop. It's always going to be that original suit, and you're, just, you're never going to top it. So I think, yeah, I'm glad it was very much a mandate of ours. No, we'll stop there. All right, no. We'll stop at the series in 94, but that's it. <laughs> the thing is, we've got people talking about it as well, and we said we're not covering it. Like, Verhoeven covers it. There's a television people list because they're always saying, where is it? But we, we've got a lot of the cast and crew mentioning it. Ed Newmyer sort of rips into it. He talks about lifting the helmet off that we're never going to do, but obviously they do that in the remake. He did pr- pretty much say they did that in the remake, and I was like, we're cutting it out. So, yeah, it's the for anyone wondering, it's the Orion Pictures years. It's the good stuff. We don't want to cover the remake. Until season four. Yeah, that a very interesting one. Maybe where there might have been temptation, I'd say that on my own behalf, is that I know Neil Blomkamp was, I don't know if he is now, quite active on social media. So there's a part of me going, if you end up doing this true sequel, maybe we could be convinced to say, oh, what a nice way to bring it all back around. The kind of going into that legacy sequel. And maybe allow us on set to get some nice BTS. <laughs> but uh, of course, no, here we are now and still no Robocop returns. So I hope that day comes, but say this on the record, I'm more than happy with what we've got. And Robodoc, of course. 
just on Neil Blomkamp quickly too. So when we dropped the trailer, he quickly followed me and I, on Instagram, not followed me like a stalker. And I said, oh, Neil, obviously I knew he was doing Robocop Returns at the time for a short stint. This was like 2017, I think. And I said, we would love to interview you for the just for a legacy piece for something to do with Robocop. I know, Chris, you'd lined up sort of Lee Winnell as well, who's a massive Robocop fan who did the film Upgrade, which is like a homage to Robocop. Just thought we'd get some famous people to talk about the legacy. And Neil Blomkamp, to his credit, said, I had nothing to do with that first one. I adore it. It's one of my all-time favorite films, but I don't think I should be interviewed for it. And I was fantastic. And then once he got took, taken off of it, he, he unfollowed us. Yeah, just to tie that one in a little bow in terms of the, the legacy outside of the Orion stuff. We had a big brief encounter. Now, if you can get Darren Aronofsky to talk about what he had in mind for his version of Robocop, I'd be open to hearing that. Aronofsky was getting associated with so many projects. It was like, oh, a Lone Wolf and Cub remake. He's going to do Flickr. He's going to do Robocop. And obviously, none of that happened. Like Blumkamp with his Alien 5 stuff. And just there's so many titles that he gets associated with. That's another one I'd be tempted to cover, maybe. Alien 5. Oh, no, it can't be Alien 5 because it mitigates what happens in 3 and 4, so Alien 2.5, whatever you want to call it. I think there's a good story to be told there, and God knows there's enough cool visual references to work. Maybe something in the vein of Jodorowsky's Dune. Oh, that'd be nice. Or even whatever happened to Superman Returns. Thank you so much for your time. This is so great talking with you. Congratulations on RoboDoc. You definitely did a wonderful job, and I look forward to getting the Blu-ray eventually, and I was so glad to be able to watch all four parts of it. 